Welcome to the Rare Sense Podcast. This is Chris Irwin. Before we get started, remember that Rare Sense content is not medical advice, nor does it represent the official position or opinions of any other organization or person. If you require diagnosis or treatment for a mental or physical issue or illness, please seek it from a licensed professional. Today I'm speaking with Chris Henderson. Chris is an Army and Navy veteran who, since 1996, has been a member of the band Three Doors Down as one of their guitarists. He's also somebody who suffered immense abuse as a child that led to mental health and addiction issues later in life. During our discussion, Chris opened up about what he went through, what it did to him, and how he still works to overcome those effects. I've known Chris for years, and going into the interview, I didn't know any of this. I intended to talk about drug and alcohol abuse, as well as using music as a therapy. He's somebody who's gone through a physical transformation, certainly, by being healthier later in life. And I thought that we would mainly talk about that. I was not aware of the trauma he had endured from a young age. And having this conversation really made me reflect on how you never know what people are dealing with internally, even if they are legitimate rock stars. When I hear a story like this, I just realize how much more compassionate and understanding we must be with one another. Note that if you or someone you know has endured something similar to what he went through, this may be a challenging listen. It gets really heavy and very emotional at times, so please be aware of that. I also wouldn't recommend this episode for young ones without parental consent. For that reason, I've limited its viewability on YouTube. That said, I think watching the interview really adds to its impact. So if you're able to do that, I recommend it. I was absolutely amazed by Chris's willingness to be vulnerable and forthright about his experiences. He's brutally honest in this interview, including detailing how all of this shaped his behavior as a young man and adult. It takes an immense amount of courage to speak this openly, and I commend him for it. This is about as raw and real as it gets. So without further ado, here's Chris Henderson. Chris, how's it going, man? Good to see you. Good to see you too, man. It's been a minute. I know. When was the last time we saw one another? Oh, God. I don't remember. I don't remember either. Um, was it at one, one of the Cherokee events? In, uh, I think it was Better Life, yeah. In Cherokee, yeah. Uh, Cherokee, North Carolina. Yeah, nice. It's been a while. Yeah. Well, hopefully I'll see you this summer. Like I said, you're coming up to uh, – you got a show in Great Falls. I'm going to try and bring my boys, which would be yeah, great. Bring them. It's going to be good. And that's going to be a good tour. I'm excited about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, time. it's time to get back out and play. Have you not been in tour for a while? Well, we have, but it hadn't been like uh, I think the last tour was the See the Tour, which was uh, last summer. That was good. But uh, the one before that was uh, the Candlebox one. So they COVID, it was like a, a really big spot in between. And then we went back to the COVID kind of precautions. And there was like this big gap where we didn't tour. And we really haven't gotten back to that kind of touring. It's just been, you know, COVID changed a lot of things for a lot of people. And it changed touring, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you're back out doing it. I mean, it's it's awesome. So, uh, and I'm sure you guys are too. That's I, I can only imagine. So, l- let's start off real real quick. It's funny. Most of the people I've interviewed to date, I have to kind of say, "Hey, tell us." You know, people who don't know who you are, <laughs> you're somebody who I feel like I can just say, "Hey, Chris Anderson, guitarist for Three Doors Down," and like everyone's kind of like, "Yep, got it." I doubt there's many people out there who don't know the band. Um, but anything else you want to add to that in terms of? Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. It's, they always know the band, but when they see me, they're like, 
I, you're in that band? I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm, a, I'm the guitar player. They're like, oh, the, the new guy. I'm like, no, no, I'm, I was, uh, I've was. i been there since 1996. I'm not an original member, but um, – But you're basically an original member, right? I mean, like – I you- mean, as far as like – yeah, I think so, but like, but not an original original. Three, it's Matt, Todd, and Brad. Yeah. And they started it, and they wrote Kryptonite, and they did Loser. They wrote, they wrote some hit songs together, those three guys. And then I joined. And we wrote more hits, and and uh, which is cool. But so I joined like two years, I think, maybe after the inception, and probably a full year uh, after Kryptonite was recorded in a demo version. Okay, I wasn't even on that recording, but it was really cool, man. Really cool to like even step into that because I heard Kryptonite maybe two weeks after it was recorded, and I was like, holy shit! <laughs> I knew right then I had to be in this band somehow, or the dreams that I had as a musician were not going to come true. I knew it right then. And I and, wanted but, so you didn't, you didn't play on that song. Like the recording of that is not you playing. No, no the one that everyone hears. Yeah. I've seen, oh, okay. but it was okay. like, that was done in 1995 or 96, right before. Yeah. Right before I joined, they recorded that. And man, I was like, Oh man, I got to get in this band. I was in another band, like a player band, you know, with all the musicians and all those guys and a falsetto singer and no one liked us. We were really good. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I was in that band, and then um, I had quit that band to join Three Doors. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, that was probably a good a good move on your part. I think that was I, a good I call. I followed my gut, man. You know how that works. You know, yeah. I followed my gut. And that was one of the first times I didn't question. I was like, you know what? It tells me to go. Let's go. I called the guys. When I got the offer, I called the guys that I was in the band with. I was like, see ya? Yeah. The other, the other thing about you that I think uh, probably a lot of people don't know is you're a veteran, right? Oh, yeah. For, former Navy. Former Navy and Army. I did a little stint in the Army, which I don't like to talk about. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah, but it didn't last long, and I didn't. Uh, I, I left no uh, bridge unburned, and no. I, I walked out of there like this. <laughs> I went back to the Navy. So, uh, and when? Um, how long were you in the Navy for? I mean, if you add up my reserve time and like the in the, the slide back and forth between the Army and the Navy, around like a close to almost twelve years of of not active duty or like congruent time, but like. Um, all together, kind of piecemeal together, about about twelve years of uh, of um, yeah. What would you call it? Um, yeah. Kind of hanging totally. out with them, I guess. I was in yeah. uh, CB, and I was in the twentieth, and the twentieth doesn't even exist anymore. Um, but we were basically standby. We taught A school. We did all kinds of stuff when people went on on leave, and we drilled and we didn't drill. I drank a lot of coffee and sat around a lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was. Uh, That's it was not uncommon. Of, no, it's not. It's not. And um, but uh, but I did that, and I, I spent a lot of you know, almost eleven years, I think, if you did it like that. Okay. So so actually, so let's wind wind back a little bit. So talk about that a little bit. Like, what got you into the military? What got you out? And then what got you interested in in music? And like, ultimately, set you on the path that you went down. Well, um, my brother. I'll start with the music. My brother was a is a professional musician. His name was Ed Brahms. He's a what they call a master. Um, uh. He's a master pianist, a master. Uh, he plays the uh, pipe organ, which is the big organs in the church with the bass pedals mm-hmm. on the floor. He plays that, a master at that. I think he also play, plays bass guitar, writes, got a master's degree. He's one of those guys. Um, he constantly practiced around the house, always a guitar, always a flute, always some sort of instrument. But it was, he didn't really know that he was influencing me to play rock and roll because he wasn't playing rock and roll. He was playing classical stuff and singing in a boys choir falsetto that whole thing and um which i didn't understand that at all because he was singing a part not uh a main part but like a part in the back somewhere so when you hear him sing it was like i was like what is that that you don't like it you know what i mean so i never really 
I never really gravitated towards it, that music, but I gravitated towards the instruments that they had. He had a great black guitar. I can't remember the name of it, but it was, uh, it was black. That's all I know. And it looked rock and roll as hell. And I needed to play that thing. So, um, around six, age six, I started kind of practicing guitar. So that's how I got into it. Um, military, uh, came years later. When I lived with my, my dad, my stepmother, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. So, um, no, the music kind of had to go away a little bit. I, I wasn't able to be like such a, uh, practicing musician at home. I didn't really like it at home. Um, so I became, um, only thing I could really become in Mississippi at the time to get out of the house was a multi-sport athlete, football, baseball, whatever I could get it, you know, any sport I could get into. Took a lot of practice time away from the guitar because I was kind of good at some of that stuff. Um, so I just did that so I didn't have to stay at home. I had a really rough, really rough childhood, like, like from start to finish. It's tough. It's tough. Uh, uh, but I, and music was my outlet. And before I moved in with my dad, I, I got to my dad around the age of 13. I was able to un, unlimited listen to music. My mother didn't care. Um, with that being said, she, she wasn't around much. And so I did a lot of music listening on my own and, uh, and found and discovered bands. But, um, it was the eighties and it was before it really MTV kind of was just starting. And, uh, so I, I missed a lot of things that other people would have got. I didn't have radio like, like people had. So, um, I didn't know it existed really. Uh, cause I didn't have a lot of, you know, my child, like I said, my child was a bit isolated and a bit, a bit rough. So, um, I guess around 16 or 17 living at home, um, trying to figure out what's going to do next. Cause definitely being at home in Mississippi was not where I was going to be. Uh, my dad was military. He's an air force veteran. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And, um, before I had already decided to go to the military, my stepmother and my father came to me one day and they're like, you're going to go to the military. That's what you're going to do because that's what we say you're going to do. And I already made a decision. But when they said that to me, I was like, well, now I'm not going because you say that I'm going. So what am I going to do? So, all right. So <laughs> being a kid in high school in Mississippi that didn't want to be at home and didn't want to really talk to his parents at all. Uh, my dad, sometimes stepmother didn't want to have a thing to do with her. I, I'll definitely get to some of that later and what it did to me. And what it did to her, um, it did a lot. It had a profound impact on my life, 100%, even to this day. Uh, so not not really wanting to be there. Uh, I also didn't have a pathway to college, even though I was a straight-A student. Does that make sense? Um, no one in my family went except my mother. But my mother went to college and just never talked about it. There was no one saying, you got to do this. You have to do that. It's time for you to start doing this. You got to take this test. You got to do this. You got to talk to this counselor. No one told me that. No one. I didn't have any idea that existed. I thought you pick the school you go to, you pay the money, and you go in there and you walk in, you sign up some paperwork, and you're like, all right, here I am, you know, enrolling like in high school. That's what I thought I was doing. And I was going to go to a college in, in Florida, um, and I'm University of Florida, and it was in, I think, Tampa. And I was going to play football there. They had a, uh, they had a, a football team, and, uh, but I hadn't taken the, the SAT, the ACT. So when it came time to enroll, I had taken that test, and I think it cost 400 bucks or something to take. Or 300 bucks to do the package and there was no, no way that was getting paid for. So, and that's a, that's another religious thing. Um, so anyways, uh, I didn't go to, I didn't go to college. So I went right in, in the military, right out. That's how I did it. I was like, all right, right. You guys are right. You got me. Uh, I didn't plan on going to the Navy anyways, but I'm going to go in the Navy. So that's what I did. And, and how was that? I mean, you said you sat around drinking coffee a lot. Well, the first four years wasn't like that. My active duty years, I mean, I went to school, I went to uh, Air, uh, Aviation Support Equipment Technician School in Memphis, uh, Millington, Tennessee. 
13, 31 weeks, I think that school was. That was a lot, man. So basic electricity, pneumatics, hydraulics, cryogenics, uh, of course, AC repair, all that good stuff, uh, component repair, circuit boards, uh, soldering, I mean, basic soldering, uh, basic uh, gas welding, things like that. It was a good school, man. Like Those dudes in the Navy, they do it all. And they do all the support equipment on the ground, all the stuff like on the carrier, the yellow gear is what they call it. But yep. at an airport, it's usually white or, or the colors, of all the little tanks and trucks and things that run around. Yeah, 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 yeah. We did, and those things are really complicated pieces of gear, and uh, you have to learn a lot. You have to know what you're doing to work on those things, you know, especially on a carrier. And uh, you know, it's nuts because you're up underneath these things, and you know, the boat's doing its things. You got to chop everything down. You learn how to like chain and pay attention to detail to the point where you don't like kill yourself or other people. And I know, I know you know what that means, and because um, it happens every day out there. So I mean, it was a real world education in a really short period of time, and I was proud to be able to do that and be able to make it through that. It's tough because I wasn't a very good. Um, away from home guy yet okay even though my away from home life my so <laughs> my home life really 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 sucked but and i hated it but when i got away from it i really really missed it i really really missed it as bad as it was that makes sense so yeah I, totally I wanted, to, I wanted to feel that pain that I, that I wasn't i was getting i had friends now and I had all these things i was able to do all these different things and it wasn't enough i needed someone to be mean to me you so can I mean? we so i mean like look one of the reasons i wanted to have you on here is because you're well one you're a friend and but two you're somebody who's i've known kind of go through a transformation in a lot of ways physically i think mentally as well and i know you're you're very interested in kind of mental health and we you and i go back and forth about it and you're very willing to, and open to yeah. talk about it too so dive into that a little bit. Like you talked about kind of your childhood and like what that did to you and everything. And, and I, I think it's a good for perspective for people too, because you're somebody who's been very successful yes. as a musician, right? A lot of commercial success, people know your songs and it's important when someone like you can kind of come out and say, Hey, here's all the stuff that I, I dealt with. I still deal with and sh it shaped me, but like, you know, I can, I'm still out there kicking ass and doing all these things. So yeah, talk about that. Sure. Um, well, I'll start, I'll start it like kind of how it started. Uh, a sexually abused child um, hundreds of times by many people, men and women, uh, not just one or two, but several. And uh, but not like all in one place. Almost everywhere I went, I was like some sort of lost child that people picked up. I mean, those kind of people pick up on that. And uh, I became conditioned to attention. Cause I wasn't getting, my dad left at three. I was getting no male attention at all. And when I was, it was negative boyfriend from mother. My mom did what she could to protect me, I think. Um, but you know, the men that she was bringing around, um, were not, not, they weren't abusing me that way, but they were not very nice to me. And, uh, I didn't really know what I had done wrong to, to be treated like that by those guys. But then there was other people that treated me a different way. And I didn't know, I was very confused on why I was being treated, you know, like this by one person and being treated like this by another and then being treated in the middle by my family a whole different way. None of it good. Abandonment, abuse, just basically violence. You know what I mean? Yeah. All three. So that's how I grew up. And um, my mom didn't recognize it because she was going to school full-time, working full-time job, two sometimes full-time jobs going to school like that. And so I was being raised by children um, and their parents, other people's parents. And uh, those were, that's how it happened. And so everywhere I got kind of stuck, um, with the exception of maybe two, I was abused. I was abused by my babysitters, um, to, uh, 
for years. Um, one of them, everyone she hired, I seemed to be a, some sort of predator. Um, I got to the point, Chris, where I could smell them. I could, when I walked into a room at the age of, oh, I don't know, 11, uh, and someone had that on their mind, I knew it. I knew who they were, I knew they were coming. I knew, I knew eventually it was coming, how they were going to approach me. And I just was like, all right, I'll surrender almost before, before it happened. Wow. And that's just because that's how I was being, I was getting my attention that way. Did you, um, was this something that was happening to other kids you knew? Do, were you aware of that at all? Or was it just you? Just me. I didn't know that, that it existed in the world like that, like it does. I just thought that. I, I didn't have anything to compare it to, man. It was just me, and it was all the time. It was just wherever I went, even to up to the last time that I was uh, with my mother. It happened the whole time I was with her. And and how did you cope with that at the time? Well, at the time, you like I said, you you uh, you surrender to it. It's, it's it's called it's called freeze or flight, right? You got yep. a freeze response yep. or, or a fight response or a flight. And I never really used fight or flight. Unless I absolutely, my, my gut would tell me in an instant to do it and I would just go. And that happened once, I think, um, but only once. Usually I just, you know, I'd freeze. And, yeah. uh, and whatever happens, I already knew it was coming. So just, I knew that I could get through it if I just was quiet and didn't fight. And whatever happened was going to happen. And, you know, that's, so that's how I dealt with it. And then I didn't remember it, man. So, like, yeah, no, th okay, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah so, so strange. Um, so when I was 13, I was in trouble at school. I mean, my grades started, you know, failing around the age of 12 or 13. I quit going to school completely, uh, listening to some deep, dark music, lots of Satanist stuff, lots, lots of, you know, the devil's this and the devil's that, lots of that, really kind of buying into that thing, you know, with the eyeliner and the long hair and the earrings. And I was really, I was getting really goth at a really young age. And uh, my mom was like, whoa. And, uh, she decided, hey, Maryland, we're not going to live here anymore. We're going to go to Florida. And so I was born in Maryland, by the way. I'm not actually from Mississippi. Like uh, okay. Uh, I was born in Maryland until um, I lived there until I was around 12 and a half, something like that. That's where all the main abuse happened, the, the bulk of it, lots of it. Moved to Florida, um, turned over a new leaf, and we moved into a brand-new apartment building. My mom went ahead and got two full-time jobs like I knew she would. And uh, so – uh, we moved into this apartment, and I was on my own in a whole new place, a whole new town, uh, Pinellas Park, Florida. I know um, where that is. Yeah, <laughs> right there. I do. Yeah. So yeah. Actually, I loved it, man. I loved it there. I uh, uh, I loved it there because I was on on the ground. I was on my alone, twenty four seven. Uh, a kid, a teenager, lots of pretty girls, lots of you know something I liked, and uh, there was also lots of other things there, man, that I was used to. So. I went and jumped in the pool one day. It was like a week after, I think, maybe a week or two after we moved there. And uh, I stepped out of the pool, came out the little gate, and I looked down the street, and there was an adult section of the apartments and a family section. And I was looking down the street that split them. And I saw a gentleman ride on a bike out to the stop, out to the intersection. And I looked at him. He was maybe a tenth of a mile away. He hadn't, he hadn't seen me yet. I was like, there that motherfucker is. That's the guy. And he immediately made a right turn and came straight to me. He goes, what's your name? And I said, I'm Chris. He's like, you want to go smoke some cigarettes? And I was like, yeah, I'll go with you. And I knew it right then. And it didn't start instantly. It took him. Uh, he, he, did, he did the whole grooming process that they do, right? But I already knew what he was doing. And I just happened to be talking to a dude that was like, you know, like I'm not a, a homosexual man. I'm not. Uh, don't have anything about that. But at that age, that's how I got male attention was, was through. The, the, and so he became a friend at first. You know, he did the whole thing. And uh, he went slow. He helped me with my homework. 
did everything I wasn't getting at home because I didn't have a male figure there. So like, I didn't understand that then, but I understand it now how, why, how that happens is, uh, that's how kids, kids want to belong. So I belong to those people. I didn't belong to parents that, that treated me like parents should. So I had a lot of that shit to deal with. So, but so instantly after all that happened and when, when it happened, my mom, she did find out kind of what was going on, moved me to live with my dad, who I hadn't seen in a really long time in Montana. Kalispell is where he picked me up. I lived in Big that's Fork. Where, that's where I live. Yeah. Yeah. I lived in Big Fork and I uh, went to, went to Big, uh, let me see, Swan Lake Ele- Elementary, which was, uh, let me see, went to the eighth, I think, and then we went to Big Fork High School after that. I was going to play football and all that good stuff. Didn't, you know, stayed there for about, about a year with my dad, maybe less than a year in Montana. Blackout from all that stuff as a child instantly went away. Instantly, I didn't remember any of it. I wasn't fighting with details and became a straight A student. So hang on. So legitimately like just disappeared from your memory. Like you couldn't even, I don't remember ever really thinking about it uh, from about the after like the day, the last time that ever happened to me in Florida until another point in my time that I'll kind of get to. uh, Cause it's really, I think it's relevant how it happened. Um, I didn't think about now. This is when, this is when the behaviors that come from that sort of life start. So the behaviors start, but the memory goes away. But you so now you have these behaviors that you don't understand while you're doing things. But you're doing really weird things that other people aren't doing. And I, I say weird. To an eighth grader, it's weird, you know, to do some of the things that were coming out of me, you know, um, sexual things, things that I didn't, I couldn't describe, things that I hadn't done, things that I've never seen before that I was like, okay, well, that seems like a great idea. Uh, so this, you know, because I'm starting to become a man, started, things are starting to happen, um, starting to notice girls. Uh, but the types of girls I'm noticing maybe aren't the types of girls that maybe I should be. You know, that kind of thing started happening at first. First thing I noticed, I really liked, I didn't like the pretty girls. I liked the ones that I thought were not pretty. And um, I was settling. I was I was uh, pursuing, mm-hmm. making a great effort to get these girls to like me. And once they did, boom, I'm on the next. I'm just boom. So I started this kind of like girl hopping thing. But I wasn't um, sexually active with women. I was... Uh, Still, uh, as, as far as it went, as far as I was concerned, a, a virgin, I hadn't don't remember any intercourse or anything with any other people, but there was plenty of it, but I didn't have it. It was there, but I didn't, you know what I'm saying? Like, yep. really strange, but I, so I was doing things differently than other people. And, um, I didn't, I never understood what a girlfriend was and like a companion and how you love someone and all that stuff. And I still struggle with that a bit, but so that's when that started, man. Uh, Around eighth grade, it started really. I started. I had this thing where they called me Mr. Stare, where I would stare at girls and just couldn't take my eyes off of them. And but okay. I just would stare at them. I didn't realize I was doing it. It was a compulsion. It was something I couldn't stop. And if I didn't do it, uh, if I didn't like kind of like somehow battle it and have that fight, if I didn't have that fight, then it would get so bad that I couldn't like. I would just almost like fall over looking at someone. Hmm. And they thought I was a fucking creep, man. You know, everyone did. Um, I remember in, in the sixth grade before I would do that to my sixth grade teacher. Her, her name was uh, Miss Ruder. And uh, I'd stare at her and I couldn't stop. I couldn't take my eyes. Even when she corrected me in front of the whole class to, let, to quit looking at her, I couldn't. You know what I mean? And, and it, be, it was an issue that I had to like, she pulled me off the side. She said, why are you doing that? It makes me feel so strange. And I didn't understand why would you feel strange. I'm not doing anything but staring at you like a fucking idiot. I don't understand why you, <laughs> I don't have any intention towards the, any, any bad intentions towards you. I just think you're really pretty. And that, that's why I can't take my eyes off of you. 
to me, it was like a compliment that I was doing it. I, that's the way I looked at it. But to her, it was not. It was, uh, it was offensive. And I, and I never understood that. I do now, but I never understood why she was so angry. And, um, I don't know. That was, so that was like a female thing that I didn't really quite get. And there's a lot of things that could have came out of that kind of behavior that, that other people, uh, may may get like some really bad shit, man. I didn't get any of that. Like I'm not attracted to, ch- I don't do the child thing. I'm really, I will, uh, don't even want to talk about it with people. And if, you know, it's like, it's a painful, sh- it's a painful shit. And, uh, kind of, I've dealt with a lot of it. Obviously I haven't dealt with all of it. But there's no way to deal with all of it. Say so, you no. Know, comes when it comes and it comes how it comes and you deal with it by either acting out which is a thing or breathing, counting. I'll calm down by breathing, take a few deep breaths and oxygenate my brain or kind of go away and I can talk about it again. You know, yeah. see how it just comes. And I knew it was going to happen. But anyways, um, I had this whole life as a teenager. My first time that I consider uh, the decision to have intercourse with a girl because you liked her was uh, in the ninth grade, I think, about the time anyone would have that. And uh, <laughs> with all the sexual experience I had at that point in time, when it came down to that, I was a, I froze again because it wasn't like we were in love and it happened. She planned it. She had it all worked out. Like this girl had my first time worked out already before I did. I didn't know it. She made a comment to me where I was sitting in a football, watching the football team that I was going to play for the next year play uh, in Mississippi. She looked over at me and she said, you know, when are we going to go F and where are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? We're going to do it right now. Let's go. And I was like, that's how my first time happened. So I instantly went into like, but I didn't know that I was getting, uh, felt like I was, I was triggered. I was triggered. So when the time came for the stuff to go down, I was not able to really have any sort of like, anything. I didn't know what the fuck I was going on at the moment. And it was really strange. I didn't like it. And the next day she went to school and told everybody that kind of what happened. So my first experience was a public traumatic experience, uh, in the ninth grade. So that set me up to do a lot of different things. I could really hate women. If I wanted to, I could really do all this. You know, I could be uh, an idiot and just use that as an excuse to hate and, and be violent. So I didn't, I just played football. Um, and was at practice every day, never missed a day. You know, varsity squad really, really, really early and um, played my ass off. And that's what I did. Baseball, everything. I went I went for it. And that's when that multi-sport athlete thing started happening. And I became a straight-A student and didn't mess around with grades. I did everything right. I did my schoolwork. Never had a girlfriend. Just rejected girls automatically. Became uh, socially awkward where I really couldn't talk to them at all or I just didn't. And, uh, yeah, that was my high school years. So I just, just didn't mess with girls. Yeah. And then. Uh, with the Jehovah's Witness thing, it was really tough. Uh, I don't even use that as an excuse. It was just tough, man. So like, you know, take all the stuff that happened to me as a kid and not take Christmas from me. What are you going to do next? You want to kick my fucking dog? You know, like that was the life I was living. And, uh, you know, some people have it worse and I get that, but bad is bad, man. You know, and, uh, my stepmother was a really, really super religious to the point where Jehovah's, uh, that religion killed her and she wouldn't take a blood transfusion and she died, uh, which I thought was, man, 
I just ain't got nothing about it. I'm just not going to talk bad about, about that. I'm just going to say that. You know, if you ain't got anything good to say, don't say anything at all. So about Jehovah's Witnesses, I'll say much. You know what I mean? They, they, they love it. They get it. But I didn't really appreciate it from where I came from. I like Christmas. I like Easter. I like all those religious holidays that we had. Uh, I didn't really need them snatched from me for no reason. But that was that happened. And so that was another big traumatic thing where Christmas comes around. And you're not allowed to care. You know? Yep. That would suck. That sucked. You don't get the, you don't get that spirit that I used to have. I don't get it anymore. Of course, Christmas, Christmas is kind of just another day, you know. So it kind of like is what it is. So, man, I think uh, up to this point, and I'm around 18, about ready to go in the, in the military. I, I go, I go to boot camp, and when I get there, I'm instantly homesick for the people that really didn't give me much attention. But but the, the adult attention I was getting at home was all negative. Uh, but it was the only attention I was getting. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I was getting positive attention from teachers at school because working my ass off and getting that kind of attention, that was good. That was where I got positive attention. When I got home, I got negative attention. It was all I got at home, so that's all I expected. So when I went to boot camp and you started getting that negative attention, again, in a different way, uh, it was like a fucking, uh, it was like a baseball bat to the brain for me. It wasn't like, Oh man, I'm getting, you know, they're breaking me down, going to boom me back up. I didn't understand that. I was like, fucking, is every person on the planet a fucking dick? Every person. Because <laughs> the first Sorry, guy you I meet, shouldn't laugh, but like, but, I mean, it, but yeah, I, for me, yeah. I was like, no one's ever been nice to me. Yeah. Yeah. Hate me. Everybody hates me. They're yelling at me and screaming. But my teachers, when I got good grades, so I went to boot camp, man. I was 200 and I was a fat dude, right? 260, I think, when I went there. But I was mm -hmm. a solid 260. I played high school football. So I could run, I could move, I could do my stuff, but I couldn't really, I couldn't do the brain, you know, when, 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 uh, my, I'll never forget his name. We had a chief petty officer, Hermosilla was the, uh, the, 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 the chief and then the first class, uh, the, uh, company commander. Uh, his name was, uh, uh, McLaughlin. He was a, uh, ship's, uh, a ship serviceman, SH, gave haircuts. Like, that's, that's, yeah, that's yeah. what he goes, I give haircuts. And I was like, all right, well, I didn't really understand that at first, but I do now. But, um, but man, he was, uh, he was, uh, a fair and a fucking really, uh, a, a really mean and a really nice guy, all in the same. You know how they, how those guys are. He was sure. really good at, at me understanding how that really worked. And, uh, when I, but I, when I got there, Chris, I did not understand what he was doing. And so I hated him, but not because I was supposed to, I hated him on a personal level. I was wanting to take him out. You know what I mean? I wanted to like this motherfucker. He, he's out, he's out to get me and I don't deserve it. I have done anything to him. That's what I felt, but it took a minute. You know, to uh, a reflection and, and uh, down the road is when I, it, it all came around and I understood what he was doing and how that job worked. He was doing his job, but I didn't understand it as an 18 year old that had been through what I had been through. So what do I do? Um, I, I, I resort to a behavior that I didn't understand, that I didn't know was coming. And what I would do, man, is I would black out basically and cry. You know what I mean? I would. Yeah. I would come to Waterworks and I'd cry. I never know. I never knew I was doing it until he came to me one day and he called me into the to his office and he's like, "Hey, you know what's going on with you and this crying?" And I was like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "You're crying. Uh, I saw you today crying. Uh, I saw you yesterday crying. Um, you were crying the day before that." He goes, "You cried when you got here." He's like, "What is wrong with you? Like, what is going on?" And I was like, "Ah, I don't know. You know what's wrong with me? I, I, I've never had this. I never had it happen before." But that was the end of it. Like I didn't send me to a value, be evaluated. He didn't send no doctors, none of that stuff. He just 
ask me about it. And that stopped it. Hmm. You know, it was positive male attention. I didn't know that's what was going to stop it, but he, he genuinely cared about me all of a sudden. And I was like, and he wasn't trying to get anything from me. He was just telling me, hey, I see something's wrong with you. I want to know what it is. I want to help you. So let me help you. And uh, stop it. And almost instantly. I didn't cry anymore at boot camp. But I did start getting teased <laughs> by the other, the other guys in the, in the company. You know, they called me the crybaby. And I had no idea even, I, I had no idea I was earning that title. I was yeah. just, these are behaviors that are happening that I didn't understand and um, all came from that, that right where I lived as a kid. And uh, I've, now they're just developing and they're happening and I don't know how to stop them. But they, sometimes they stop, sometimes they don't, sometimes they come back. But that was just one or two right then. Many more come, many more behaviors come and uh, many more thoughts and many more, you know, medications and doctors and things come later. Um, but I will say this. Uh, I do not medicate any of my mental health with a pill at all. I don't mm -hmm. do any of that stuff. I don't take uh, mood stabilizers. I don't take anything. It comes when it comes. It comes how it comes. And I deal with it physically on the ground uh, right when it happens. So sometimes, you know, um, things will just, I get triggered and I won't know what it is, but I'll know inside what's happening i get this feeling i hold my trauma here like some people hold on the shoulder yeah neck i hold mine here and i get this gut kick like yep. like somebody's punched me in the gut and i know right then i'm triggered or uh which i have it right now we're talking about it so i'm triggered yeah um, yeah 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 can i sorry just i want to interject with a couple things one is first of all i think it's incredibly brave and everything you're saying is such a like a vulnerable, honest, brave thing to do, right? To get emotional about this stuff, to, to be open about this. And I think it's, it's so important, right? Like it's the, it's the same things that I try to do. And I don't have near, like when I hear your story, I think about the things that I, all of my sort of trauma, so to speak, is all kind of adult, but really it all happened in adulthood. Right. And, um, when I've done therapy before, they always want to kind of dig into childhood. And I kind of, it's always a dead end for me. Like I didn't experience any of this. In fact, I was like never even exposed to the stuff you're talking about. Right. And I think it just goes to show that the, the things that can happen to us in these various ways can come at all points of life and they can be completely different for different people. Right. But that type of story I guarantee touches a ton of people that like, I find out more and more and more people that have had like traumatic kind of childhoods and everything. And like, and just, yeah, I find your story is incredible, man, in terms of, so I really appreciate you being just so open about it. Like, I, I just think it's, it's such a great thing. What I want to, and, and Oh, something you mentioned there, I, I want to hit on one is, is the kind of like holding that, like where, where you feel that in your body, man, that's something that, for the longest time, I didn't think it was a real thing, you know, but this, how essentially like memories, right? Like they get stored in places other than our minds, right? Yeah. Like we have this, we have this notion, we all get, we get the idea of a memory. We get the idea of like, we can have an experience and we can store that information, right? Like this experience gets stored in our cells, right? So you get like an energetic experience that's stored that you can recount might not be accurate, but but that information is stored. But we don't sort of take it to the next logical step, which is, well, if it's really traumatic, who says it can only be stored in your brain, right? right? Why can't it be stored in other parts of your body? And when I started to think about that, I'm like, 
yeah, there's no reason why it can't get stored in your stomach or your liver or your back or your neck or something yeah. like that, right? And like you said, you can feel it. And I think that's such an important thing for people to learn how to tap into and try to process too, to like sit with that. There's a guy, Russell Kennedy, who's an anxiety doctor. And he talks about that, like that is your alarm system. Like you have this like trapped alarm basically. And when you feel that, like you have to go back to that actual feeling and sort of give it comfort, almost like talk to that part of your body and be like, hey, it's okay. Like, cause it's like your, your childhood self is like stuck in that part of your body, which sounds really woo, but, but you're, you're a testament to it of like, no, no, no. Like I can feel that. Right. 100%. So, so what was it like, dude, that's a shit ton of stuff to deal with. Mm -hmm. At what point in your life did you figure out how to start dealing with it? And what did that look like for you? Did you go to therapy? You mentioned you don't take drugs now. Did you try some yeah. antidepressants or whatever, you know, prescription meds? Did you go to therapy? Like, and what's worked for you, right? Like, I think this is so important, not only for you, obviously, but for, for other people like you that have been through these types of experiences. I, I always say it's not the same for everybody, but it's good to hear what works for other people to, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. I've been to therapy uh, many, 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 many hundreds of times. Uh, and, and the one type of therapy that worked for me, it's not really um, talk therapy works. Talking works, but just being brutally fucking honest about how it was for me and how it is for me and, and how it comes out of me and how it just does for me now is my one of the things that I do to deal with it. Being honest about it, lying about it doesn't do shit, but make it worse. Being truthful about it, owning it, because it's embarrassing, man. Some of the things that, that happen and some of the things that you do, and, and you know this, like trauma causes trauma causes trauma if you don't deal with it. So when you get traumatized, you get triggered, you are on the fucking, you are the perfect specimen to do something stupid to traumatize yourself again. Well, and other people, right? You mentioned it. Yes. These people that, that were part of your experience, right, that traumatize you, they're probably people that were abused as well. Right. More, more than likely. likely. More than likely you know? in some form because you can smell each other, right? You can, <laughs> yeah. You can I, see, I don't, I've never experienced that, but I believe you completely. Well, I mean, you can. So what happens, what happens to me is I will go and I will marry someone who has sexual trauma, almost guaranteed. Or I'm going to date someone who has a lot of sexual trauma, who's got issues in that respect. They're not going to be the same behaviors that I have, but they're going to have them. And I'm going to, I'm not going to know that when I meet them, but that's going to be the one for me. Yeah. You know? And I didn't realize I was doing that. Um, until just a couple of two years ago, three years ago, uh, when I was doing all these therapies, I've had a lot of behaviors as a married man and a lot of behaviors as a person who would, I would find spouses and significant others. And I would, I was either a cheater or I was a compulsive liar or, and still battle with that, by the way, the compulsive lying, it just happens and you don't really mean for it to happen, but it does happen. I got to be really careful, especially when I'm like on like a, uh, being recorded that I don't lie. I haven't done it yet. So um, <laughs> I would, I would have it, but I would be feeling it if I had, you yeah. know what I mean? I'd be like, God, I can't believe I just said that. So if I do in the, you know, in, in the course of this, I'll have to stop and be like, Hey man, check it out. I just did that on purpose. I, I mean, on accident, I didn't mean to do it. I just did it, but I'll stop. I'll stop and tell you right then just to get it out of the way. Uh, but man, I was married. I married my first wife. I thought she was the prettiest woman I ever saw. And I just didn't want to be without her ever again. I loved her for the first time. I loved someone instantly triggered. The first time I saw her, um, like me, mm. okay. she showed like a, like a sexual interest in me. 
not the first time that I saw her, but when it happened, it triggered me. I was still able to, you know, fight through that feeling, but it's not supposed to happen, I don't think. You know what I mean? I mean you're not supposed to be triggered to the point where you felt like you were being preyed upon by a beautiful woman that you thought was beautiful, that you wanted to be with. And I was questioning not my sexuality, but my motivation, if that makes sense. What am I doing right now? Am I allowing her to do what she wants to do to me, or am I a part of this process? I don't know. I don't think I'm a part of it. I don't like this. And what happened is after uh, a few months of being with the woman I wanted to be with, I became where I couldn't touch her. I couldn't be with her. Hmm. This is one of the things that came from this trauma. That these are and uh, it's a really good book out there. You were mentioning about the about the holding of the of the of the trauma. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. It's oh like, yeah, it's the best. I mention it all the time. Yeah, it's a great book, and everyone should read it if they have any sort of thing going on with yep. them. Like, should read it a couple times actually, but uh, yes, yeah, so I hadn't read that book yet. But uh, I would get this like, oh my god, like oh, this wall would shoot up, and and I was like, and she was like, what is the, what's wrong with you, you know? And now, now, Chris, I could go out and I could act out and be with other women other than her, but I couldn't be with her. Hmm. I could go and do, you know, and have fun and party and drink and and one night stands all day long. I could do it. I just couldn't go home and be with my wife because she loved me and she wanted to be with me. The other women, and it was like, I don't know what that was. It was, it was, um, I didn't have an excuse for it. I was just doing it. I think I learned that behavior from my dad or anyways, but I, I know now what it was. It was, um, it was traumatic acting out. Yeah. That's the feelings that I was getting here. Uh, on the road or whenever in the band, I would I'd get this body feeling. I wouldn't know what it was. I always had it. I had it constantly, 24-7 in his gut have, like I have now. But I acted out sexually with some girl that I met on at a show or something like that. Knocked that shit out. Or drink. Was it? Was this like a thing where because of what happened to you as a kid, you couldn't associate like loving intimacy with sex basically? Like like you, those things had to be decoupled for you? Uh, yeah. I had to have love and intimacy some other way besides sex. I couldn't, yeah, right. I couldn't have an intimate sexual encounter with anyone. I could, uh, some girl I didn't know, uh, you know, that I met in a hotel bar. I can have yeah, a really intimate- right. Right. But, the, but not one where there's like a, a real relationship, right? Like where there's, mm-hmm. huh? I, man, I'm sitting here right now as a 50, 51 year old man. I'll be 52 in a couple of weeks. And I've never really had, uh, had that like that yet. Yeah. And I'll get, I'll, I'll explain what, what I mean. Um, been married twice. I've had moments and I've had children and I've had that stuff. And my, my children are adults now, some of them, uh, three of them. But um, I never really felt like I ever loved anyone or was loved by anybody. Yeah. And I still don't know what that's supposed to feel like. I don't think maybe just, you know, it's just, I'm just being honest. And um, yeah. So do you, do you get, what about like love of friends, you know, like. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I certainly think I love you, you know, as a friend, right? As a friend. But let me tell you what I also have in that same thing. I, I have love and respect for friends. I have maybe my circle small, man. Like I have like 10 people that I consider like good friends. You're, you were one of those people. Um, I am an avoidant. I have an avoidant personality because I don't want to have to fucking deal with the with. At some point, all of my friends are going to stab on me. That's mm. what I yeah. Even though they don't, right? Because there are normal people on the planet. You're not abnormal. Like that's <laughs> I think that's the thing, right? Like this, this it's it's you're not, right? You're like, not, I, but you get you get what I why I would say it like that. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I totally, I totally get it, man. But like I mean, yeah. the, the whole point is that 
you know, part of the reason why I try and talk about, I'm open about myself as well, right? It's like, like everybody's fucked up, right? Like everybody has problems. They're all different. You know, we're not, it's not like we're all cookie cutter or whatever. And that's, that's okay. Like we all just have to deal with our stuff, but, but like what you're doing, I think the more open and honest we are about it to the extent that we're comfortable doing that and that it helps us. It does. It's just such a, I just think it's such a good thing. And it, and it, because it, it not only helps us, but it, it's, it's like, you know, it helps other people, right? Like when you hear somebody open up and say they've been through like what you've been through, there's a whole bunch of people who hear that and go, wow, like I thought I was alone, right? Yeah. Like there's a ton of people that just think they're alone. Everyone probably. Um, there's tons alone. of veterans that think they're alone in their struggles, you know, yeah. all walks of life. And it's just like, you're not alone. You really are not. And it's not. one thing to, it's one thing to say that it's one thing to have a meme. That's like, you're not alone. It's another thing to demonstrate it by like being open about what you're saying about yes. your own experiences. Right. That's a, and, and so it matters like for you to be, come on and just do this, I think is, it's just so brave, man. Well, you know what? I'm going to have a good day after this. I mean, this <laughs> good. Is, me too. This, this I'm a having dump. a good day right now. Yeah, well, I was gonna me too, but I'm I'm dumping a lot of stuff that needed to be dumped, and and uh, it, um, I'm I'm gonna pick it back up and and take it with me, but but I'm gonna be able to dump it again yeah. some other way by breathing or by counting or so, some of yeah. things. I've but get into that, right? Like, so what's at what point in your life did you go? I got to deal with some of this stuff somehow, right? And and what what did you do? Well, I tell you, I went to treatment at um, at the age of forty eight. Uh, drugs and alcohol, heroin addict, uh, cocaine, everything I can get my hands on for habituates. Anything that made me go up or down, I was in it. Coffee, uh, sex, behaviors, acting out. I had all these addictions I didn't understand. So I went to treatment. I went to alcohol, a drug and alcohol treatment center in Tennessee, Cumberland Heights. Uh, went in there so messed up that they wouldn't give me any uh, uh, what they call detox meds. I had I had to wait. I had to wait like a eight hours or something like that. Worst. I had to be with it with withdrawals. And so I made a lot of money. I didn't have to go without drugs. I always had drugs. I always had what I needed. Didn't understand why I was doing, doing it the way I was doing it. It was really bad. Um, my kids remember traumatizing my children, you know, after being traumatized, you, you, you deal with trauma, you use, you act out and traumatize the people around you. Now they got to deal with, you know, so it's just a fucking thing that happens in life. Um, I go there, they give me medication. I think it lasts seven days. On day eight, the very first clean day I had on planet Earth, I, I say, because it started at a really young age, uh, I was looking, I was walking, it was a sunny day, it was round, I went in and it was about January, February of, uh, of 2009, I think, walking across the courtyard of the treatment center, I look up and there's a bird in a tree and I see him and I was like, fuck man, it's a beautiful day, I just noticed this bird for the stuff, like, oh man, I'm clean, wham, trauma. Here it hits me. Like the first day on that I'm clean, I don't have drugs or anything in my system. I'm not sexually acting out or thinking about it. I get a lifetime of sexual abuse just comes crashing in on me. And it happened really fast. And it was, uh, if that would have happened to me anywhere but the place I was at, probably wouldn't have been any more me around because it really hit me hard. And I didn't know how to uh, tell anybody. Yeah. I hadn't got to the point where I'm at now with it. So what do you do is you stuff and you stuff and you stuff. And so these behaviors, like these behaviors started happening and the crying. Oh man. But now I'm remembering it. You know what I mean? Cause I had like my brain allowed me. I was like, all right, now you're ready. You're ready to do this. Let's do this. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if I was ready, but you know, it started right then. And man, it was uh, a whole different set of rules 
I got clean. I still stuffed. Okay. I didn't have the process power I have now. I stuffed it. So I, but I was able to stuff it, get clean. I got clean, stayed clean for a long time, struggled my ass off with, with, uh, still the same behaviors. The, um, as a sober man, married again. I married my second wife. Same thing. Boom. Wall goes up. But I'm not using drugs and alcohol anymore. I don't have an excuse for it. I don't know how to explain it. Um, other behaviors start happening at that point. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of like acting out stuff that I was, was doing, not cheating, but things I shouldn't be doing as a married man. Nevertheless, couldn't, st- couldn't stop them compulsively doing it. Um, bad, bad, bad stuffing it, stuffing it, stuffing it coming. I came clean to her and that's when it really got bad. Okay. So when I came clean to my second wife, I want to do things differently. Uh, I was clean. I had, uh, eight years, no drugs, no alcohol, nothing. Um, these behaviors really got around year seven. <clears throat> I got super, 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 um, depressed. Didn't know what was happening. Agoraphobia started kind of setting in on me. I wasn't able to leave my home. Yep. Um, she was always mad at me because I wasn't a reg- uh, wasn't sexually, you know, good at the time. I was like, I was uh, avoiding it. Would wait till she went to bed. Then I would go to bed different hours, those types of things. Years of this. She put up with it. She put up with a lot of it. And she didn't know what was happening. She thought it was her fault, of course. So um, we did not have a really good relationship. But then all of a sudden we did. I started going to sex therapy. Uh, I went to see a sex therapist. Um, quit watching porn altogether because that's a key ingredient to being sexually traumatized. Porn becomes a thing uh, more so than anything else in your life almost. Um, so I became porn addicted 100%. Um, masturbation, the whole thing. Everything that goes along with that, every single day, all day long. Sometimes three or four days at a time, when you I wouldn't understand like what day it was. And um, those things started happening clean because I hadn't dealt with any of that sexual trauma on a therapeutic level. I'd only masked it with behaving and just stuffing. Yep. All through life, stuffing it, stuffing it. Anytime I got that feeling of trauma, whoa, uh, you know, let's take it, let's put it here, and then not breathe. Just take short deeps, you know, short breaths, and let's not be able to breathe. Let's just feel like shit all fucking day. Let's do that. That's the way we're going to do it. We're going we're gonna to write songs. We're going to go on tour. We're going to do these things. We're going to be a good uh, husband. Not going to be a good husband. We're going to be a good father. Uh, I don't know, maybe. But my kids love me. I love them. And I'm there for them. But, like, I had a lot of shit to work out, man. And uh, so I had treatment for this. Hadn't been put on my radar yet. And I'm going to tell you, there's a great program for musicians called Music Cares. Okay. I relapsed uh, after eight years. I was being struck every now and then at home. Mm-hmm. And uh, any time that happened that I would get struck, it would release a part of me that didn't exist prior. And when I say that, it would be something so terrible. Like the first time it ever happened, I relapsed that night and did things that I'm not going to talk about them. I'm just going to say that I did some things that I'll never, I'll have to take to my grave. And, um, over the course of three days and I, and it was an act out fucking adventure is what it was. And it was on drugs that I don't remember doing. Um, bad deal, man. I never, I didn't leave my bedroom for almost three days. Didn't eat, didn't drink. Just sat in front of a computer and I didn't understand that it was even possible. How someone could do that. And when that happened, I called some the only person I knew in the world that could help me was a sponsor I had at the time. Called him. He was like, you need to go to a treatment. Like, you need to go. To, and he told me, he said, don't go to a drug and alcohol place. Find a trauma center. Now, when someone says trauma center, 
Are they speaking of like a level one trauma center where people go when they get, have a car wreck? That's what I'm thinking. I didn't understand what trauma really was yet. Yeah, right, I right. Yep. I, <clears throat> I went to a place. Well, I called Music Cares. I called my manager. My manager said, let's talk to Music Cares. And what is that? Sorry, what music care? I know you're about to get to it, I think, but. Well, Music Cares is an organization. They, it's a nonprofit and they help musicians and family members of musicians. Man, all, all musicians are somehow, <laughs> you know what I mean? All artists pretty much are somehow, because that's how they get it out. And I've never really met one that isn't. We all have a similar story. When I get to this place, it's full of musicians, full of really, you know, some, some, some really good ones that I've really loved. And I'm in the room with them hearing their stories and they're hearing mine and we're all connected. Yeah. All connected. It's the same. Doesn't yeah. matter how you get it, you get it, and it does what it does. And uh yeah, so music cares. I called a lady, she's in California, really nice lady. I can't remember her name, but she said, Oh my god, I got a place for you. She sent me to a place called the guest house. It was in uh Ocala, Florida. It's all right, bro. Take your time. It's, it's okay. Spent four months there. That's all it takes. Oh. Uh, so, see me one second. Take a deep breath. It's okay. I know. Yeah. Okay. Oof. Hey, you know, take your time. What I'll say on that, like, like, let it, let it go. Like, you know, one of the things I've found is that. Leaning into that is a good thing, right? So I, I understand, like, for the sake of the kind of the, <laughs> the listening audience here, you're trying to keep that under wraps. But I've I've said it multiple times, like, and you know this, right? Like, yeah. I've found tamping that down in any way in myself is such a bad idea. And like yeah. the example I give is, um, uh, I went and saw Maverick, the movie, the Top Gun <laughs> sequel, right? And I'm sitting there watching this movie and from the opening credits and Top Gun, the original movie was why I went into the military. I was the Top Gun generation. I saw that and I'm like, well, that's kick ass. I want to go do that. It's a good recruiting film. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah. And so from the beginning of that movie, it was like I was sitting there just like choked up. Yeah. And it, and I didn't even know why. I, I, I don't know if it was like I was kind of reliving my my experience in the military or just remembering what it was like to be a kid and seeing that and, and the path that took me on. But there was something about that film that just hit me. And, and my wife cried a fair amount throughout that movie, but I know the way I cry, like if I'm going to do it and yeah. it's loud and it's intense, it's like yelling basically. Like I'm essentially screaming yeah. and I'm like, I can't ruin this movie for people. But the, the lesson I learned there was like, uh, but, but I, I recognized it. I'm like, okay, I can keep a lid on this in the movie. But as soon as it was over, I got in my truck and I just cried my eyes out, man, for like 15 minutes. And it literally was like, a, I don't know why I don't. And I don't have to know why that was the other thing. Like, I don't know the, what I, what I need to know in that moment is my body is trying to tell me something and it's trying to get me to release Trauma. So anyway, the, the the moral of that story is, you know, you keeping it together here, it's like, if it were me, I would then 
as soon as we hang up or whatever, like just go, like just lean into it, right? Like it's just so important, man. Like the day I did that, it's every time I do it, it doesn't happen to me that much anymore either, right? Like, so the more I do it, the more it doesn't happen. But it used to, for for a while there, I'd watch kids movies. I'd watch like Marvel movies and like Iron Man's dying. And I'm and I'm like getting all choked up, like just silly stuff. Yes. And it felt so weird. Yeah. But once I realized it's like, it's not really about whatever you're watching or listening to right now. It's about no. something else. And this is a window that you're subconsciously, your brain and your body are kind of going, okay, we got a window, like get it out, get it out, yeah. right? And uh, and you have to do it. Like you have to kind of lean into it. So um, I, uh, I will. And I, and I have a way that, I, that, I, that I've learned throughout this process to do. Uh, and, I, and I'll, expl- I'll, say, I'll explain it a little bit. Yeah, do bit. it. Yeah, please. Um, well, when I went to that treatment center, they did something that I couldn't cry like I do now. Like it just, it'd show emotion at all. I was just like, before it was coming, I was like, you know, I mean, I could when I was in the Navy, then it went away. I got to the point where, you know, I just stuffed so much that I couldn't really release anything. And there's something they call breath work with a driving beat and it starts slow, huh? And you breathe through the drums, you breathe. And I understand that, you know, I, I understand how that works. And so I'm breathing through the drums. It's loud. It's obnoxious. And he's talking really soft. And then all of a sudden, boom, it, uh, I get into this like meditation trance and all I do is ball. So it's one solid hour of just bawling that you didn't get triggered by something out in public. You got triggered by just the music and you released so much. And and the first time that happened, go ahead. No, was it like a holotropic breath work? Was it like a really deep, really... Um like mouth breathing type yes. situation. Okay. I know all what it is. Yep. Yeah, yep. yep. It's like a holotropic man. And you get lightheaded a bit. Yep. But all yep. I've done it. Sad, sad. And then after it was over, man, I'd be like, you know, like, but I felt completely, he come over to Christ. He comes over and he's, he goes, uh, today at lunch, lots of fruits and vegetables, lots of water. He goes, you know, take care of your body. Your body just did something amazing. He said, you, you're going to, you're going to feel this for a couple of days. I was sore. Uh, but man, did I, was I happy? Yes. Like I had a lot of things go away that day. A yep. lot of things just stopped. And uh, I believe in breath work. And it, 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 it's it's what works for me. So I breathe a lot. And you'll see I'll just kind of oxygenate. And I was like, and, and they called me the breathing master when I was there because I would always take that deep breath. Nice. And so when I feel that trauma and I feel like, you know, I'm going to cry, I can breathe. I can breathe three or four times and I look around, I count, I count letters. So the, there's a, there's a here by me thing, right? A plaque behind, that I'm looking at right now yeah. here has four letters in it. And I know that. So I can say four, two, two, eight, you know what I mean? And add and count and just do a little math in my head. It takes my mind off of what I was thinking about. It takes that, the, the black dot or that thing that's in you just kind of lets it go away a bit. And yeah. um, I like that you named it. That's cool. That's a good well, thing. I, That's a good idea. I uh, uh, Judy Crane named it in a book. Okay. It's, it's called The Trauma Heart. Oh, and, okay, uh, cool. I didn't know yeah, this. I do. And I, and I read that book. And, and the black dot is where we live in trauma and where we survive on planet Earth and all the things come out of us at and where we're really having a hard time on at life. You're in that dot. And when you get to the processing point of it, it gets a lot worse. That dot kind of comes and kind of hangs on. You kind of live in it while you're in this treatment center. And everyone knows you're there. They're like, this is the eyes in the dot. He's in it. Let him have it. And they, they and you honor those feelings. Like you said, you, you feel them. You, yeah. Not only do you allow yourself to feel them, you, you surrender to them. You basically go take me 
here I am, do what you're going to do. Let's get this done. And you start the process and, and you start the process of healing from trauma, which it just takes a long time. Uh, comes when it comes. Like you said, you don't know why or when, but there it is. And you cry when you cry. Yeah. Comes how it comes. And you gotta you know, be, you gotta be thankful for it too. Right. Like, I mean, that's, that's our hard. nature. You, you exactly said it right. It's just stuff it down. Right. Like that's our nature. It's just like, whoop, not going to deal with that. Just tamp it, tamp it down, turn the, turn the top real tight, like crank it down. So that never comes out. And yep. you got to get to the point where you, where you welcome it, where it's like, okay, awesome. Right. I'm glad this. this is coming up. Right. Yeah. Like, because if you get, if, it's it's one more day. It's a day faster to getting to where you need to be, right? Instead and, of like holding it in, yeah. And it's your body is trying to save you. Yes, a hundred percent. Yep, trying to save you because you're gonna you the way that you we don't always just stuff. Sometimes we, you know what I mean? Yeah, okay, absolutely. We, yeah, that's what we do. That's what we because that feels the best. And yep, yep. You can, you can take that feeling that you have here, make it go away. And then also you can be chatty and happy and go meet girls and things that you've never been able to do before. Yep. And then that turns into a, to a, a, a kill yourself thing. And, uh, but your body's just telling you to learn different, you know, healthy ways to trauma, to get trauma out. Crying is the best. Crying is 100% the best way to get trauma out. It's just when it comes to cry, man, cry. I learned that, that, that the, uh, the stress hormone cortisol, cortisol that I was talking about with the yep. weight loss. Stuff. Yeah. Tears are 100% cortisol. Hmm. Really? So get it out. Yeah, I believe it. Let's just say that. So of the, when you do breath work now, is there a mm -hmm. specific, you mentioned kind of like looking at the word here, is there a specific technique you use that you really find effective or is it different techniques or what do you what do? What I do is like, I try to, I just try to follow the rules of breath work and breathe in, breathe out to the music. And then all of a sudden it just takes itself away from me and I have to refocus a lot in it because I'll lose it. But it's after a big session of crying. I'll cry, 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 cry. Yeah. Of course, you can't breathe ryth rhythmically when you cry. You breathe the way you breathe. So it kind of pulls me away. And then I got to stop and be like, all right, cool. Back on. And yeah. back on. Yeah. Back on. And they say to, to, to feel the breath. So what, what I do is I visualize. And I think everyone <laughs> can do this thing. And I'm getting ready to explain it. You may have a thing that you do as well. I visualize a campfire, almost a campfire, wood in a cave. But the cave is below the surface of the water and the water just kind of lips up to it. It doesn't really get in there. Mm -hmm. When you breathe, you kind of suck the water through this hole in with the fire and then mm. the smoke comes out. The smoke comes out of different holes. So that's what I think. So the fire is the, this gut burn that I get. The water is unattainable any other way, but to breathe it in and I get it like that. When it hits the fire, the steam, that smoke that comes from fire, that, that billowing thing, that's, yeah, that's how I do it. That's I great. Love that. Love that. Do you ever do any, um, so I, I, my experience has been a lot of this stuff, like what you're talking about, even the holotropic breathing, a lot of what that does is I think it reconnects, it helps reconnect our mind and body. Like our minds and bodies get kind of disconnected in a way. Yep. And so some of the other techniques that are like it that I, that I really dig are things like um, Qigong, which is sort of like a Tai Chi type thing where you're sort of moving and breathing at the same time. Okay. I really like that. Um, have you ever done any yoga nidra or NSDR? Okay. Yeah, yoga yep. nidra for sure. Yep. I really mm -hmm. like that. And then there's sort of just a basic technique uh, called somatic tracking, which is when you have something like, like your black dot or like, you know, people have chronic back pain and they go to doctors and they get x-rays and everything. And it's like, well, 
we don't really see anything or it's like they get surgeries or do these things. And it's like, I've still got this back pain. And it's like, well, it's not actually coming from a physical injury, right? What it is, is some kind of other thing. The somatic tracking is a way of where our typical response to these things is to put, we don't like it. We push it away. It's like, it's like, I don't look, nobody likes pain. So it's like, I, I don't want this. I don't. And instead it's, it's like you, you just kind of notice it and become interested by it and almost like try to like, like wrap your arms around it. Right. Like, like to adopt a different attitude with that. And it can, if you do that enough, it can actually dissipate the, the pain because you're just, you're connecting your mind with that signal in a different way in a way that makes it turns it into like a loving signal instead of a, a right. hateful signal. Um, yeah. And that's something that I had to learn how to do where it was like, I, all these sensations I would get, I fucking hated them, man. And it was so uncomfortable and I just wanted yeah. it to go away. And all I was doing was reinforcing sort of a state of fear and hypervigilance. And that just made all the symptoms worse. And so yeah. I had to change it to something where it was like, hey, I'm going to just be interested by this and almost like, just be like, yeah, cool. Awesome. That's okay. Like no problem. And it's, and it's hard and it doesn't happen overnight, but it was such an important thing. Do you, do you, so, so with everything that happened to you, what was the attitude or the feeling you were ca carrying around? Were you blaming yourself? Did you, you know, were you... And, and did you have to get over that? What, you know what I mean? Like, what was the... Yeah, a lot of people do blame themselves. I never felt like it was my fault. For whatever reason, I always felt that it was just... Um, uh, you know what? I don't have an answer, really. I, I, I do know that I never blamed myself for any of the things that happened um, then. Yeah. I, I do I, I do carry around a little bit of, of uh, guilt and shame for some of the things that I allowed to happen. Uh, after not knowing why I was doing and making those decisions or why those decisions seemed like they were great decisions because they were not, but like, I didn't have a little bit of that, but I've learned to let that go knowing that that wasn't really me. That wasn't really the person I am sitting in this chair. Now that was a, the hurt traumatized person trying to heal. Yeah. Trying right. To heal myself. Yes. I do these really dastardly things. And, and um, I understand that now. And so I took that treatment center in four months there and doing the therapies that they do there, the kind of therapy they do there, which is really, uh, it's not new news, but it's really, really in depth and it's called experiential and group therapy. They do them both at the same time. So they put everybody in the center in a room every day, two hours, three hours, however long it takes. Um, and they do experiential therapy and every person that's on the list that day or just randomly picked or volunteers can do an experiential thing around a mother, around a father, around an event. A traumatic event. Uh, herp letters are one thing that they do. They, so I wrote lots of letters to people who abused me. Ah, uh, okay. Not okay. letting them go or anything like that, but you write, you write them. And I found out that one thing that I can really get next to is when someone else reads a perp letter, a perpetrator letter, something that happened to them, and they write it to them. Mm, man, I get connected. And I'm like, I, it, everything just comes. So... I was like, if you're writing a purple letter, I got to be there. I have to listen to this. We're come over and be like, hey, can you be there when I read my purple letter? Yeah. Like, I will be there with you. Oh, man, I let it go. And uh, good feeling. I got a lot out there. A lot out. But the experiential therapy was one of those things, man. And writing, journaling, writing letters to people that harmed you uh, the way that you write them. You ain't got to send them, but write them. 
And what I would do, I'd write 10, maybe 15 letters to people. I'd write to my dad, uh, angry with him. The first letter I wrote him, he didn't want to read that. I wouldn't, you know, he was dead anyways, but like, um, I wouldn't let him read it. But the last one I wrote, you know, the last out of the 10, because you release them from things as things go by. You get understanding and yeah. you start processing. And so I was able to forgive my stepmother for the way she treated me. And uh, I love her now, you know what I mean? And in death, because this didn't happen while she was alive. But um, I, she she did she did because that's who she was and how she was raised and her traumatic experiences as an adult from my father. And uh, contributed to the way I was treated. It wasn't her fault. Yeah. You know, so I get it now. What do you, um, do you have a routine now? Do you have like a daily routine that you use or is it just kind of as things come up, you have tools to deal with? No, things come up and they come up every single day. Okay. And so, yes, if I don't get up in the morning and look in the mirror and go, all right, today's the day, you know, I'm going to feel this. I'm going to feel that. I know it's coming. And so I can do uh, I do a little workout in the morning. I don't work out like I used to because that was part of the deal. That was part of the, you know. Like being jacked and ripped and, and all that yeah. stuff for me was part of my trauma. I've used it as a, I used it unhealthily. I worked out too much and, but, um, uh, but you still look more, good though, dude. You look fit and yeah. Well, I, I do work out and I eat right and I do, you know, take care of myself, but not 24 seven. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I was yep. at that gym. I want to do muscle ups and when, you know, when I, when I could do muscle ups, I was like, all right, now I want to like, I want to fly. And so yeah. I started working on flying. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, that's the way I am, all or nothing. Um, but, yeah, I don't do that. So I, I work out a little bit. I make myself not work out crazily, uh, you know, 15 hours a day. I come up here, I work. Uh, I say I bring my son with me. Um, before uh, five years ago, I wouldn't do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I was just like, no, he's got to stay home. I got work to do. Oh. So now I bring him and uh, everything's a lot better. So, That's awesome, man. Routine. And then with the band, um, with being in the band, and by the way, they they, uh, they know I went to treatment centers. They don't really know why and like uh, – I don't really talk about this with them. They don't, um, some people, man, you know, this as well as I do, you cannot have this conversation with just anyone. Right. You have to have it with someone like yourself who gets it. And, and I knew you got it. You made some Instagram posts, like out the, you know, you said you're going to do it. You started doing it. And I've been following it. And I was like, you know, Chris would be a great guy to have this conversation with. Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. Asking, like, of course. I've been looking forward to yeah. you asking for a long time. So yeah, but we're we're like making it public. So I hope you're okay with that. Like that's fine, man. I'm anywhere I go, I talk about it like this. Talk to everybody about it. That's the way I am. But you, yeah. I know within two seconds if I can have this conversation with someone. Yeah, yeah, right. You know what I mean? Some people just don't get it. Some people don't have that. Uh, don't may have had experiences like that, but just aren't gonna. Nope. Not going to therapy. Not yeah. gonna go to a treatment center. Not gonna do it. I'm stuff that I'm a man or I'm a woman. I'm not going to do it. And yep. uh, it's a shame. It really is. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, like, that's why I started. It's just, like I said, it's not abnormal. And I think once once I got my head around the fact that, and, and my, my situation is totally different from yours. Totally different. Right? Um, but, but screwed with me in equally destructive ways. Yes. Different ways. But, but, like, sent me down a really dark rabbit hole and into a really dark place for a, yep. kind of a long time, you know, and I had a lot of physical chronic problems as well. And I, and I still deal with those as, to some extent. They're so much better than they used to be, but it's a process, right? It's like a slow 
process, just like getting in shape. I always say this. It's just like getting in physical shape. It doesn't happen overnight. You always, and you have to keep doing it. I heard a yeah. great quote the other day that was someone was saying, you're not, you're not all the stuff that kind of matters is nothing that you're trying to win. You're not trying to win at getting in shape, right? You're trying to stay in shape, get in shape and stay in shape. You're not trying to win at marriage. You're trying to get married and stay married, right? And, have, and have a, a good relationship with somebody. You're not trying to like win at business even, like you're trying to stay in business. All of these things are processes that you have to, to get to the point where you're committed to the process and you're in love with the process, not some type of goal, really. Right. right. It's just like where you are in the moment. Um, and I, I just think that that's such a powerful insight. Like that's exactly the way it works, you know? Um, so let's just, I, I, I know we've been on here for a bit, but, um, can you talk a little bit too, just about, about the music aspect? Did, did, did some of what happened to you, did it make you a better musician and songwriter and all these things? Did it play a part in it? Were you taking out emotion through the music writing process? Yeah, you know, the music listening process became the music writing process. The way I listen to music and the way I write music are the same. And yep. um, I hear parts first, and then I hear instruments, and then I hear the song. So, like, I noticed that I was about, uh, I think it was 12. No, I was 13. I was 13 or 14 years old. Um, my stepmother had taken music from me, basically. I was not allowed to, uh, I could listen to music, but I couldn't get caught listening to it. Um, I couldn't have any sort of like band posters or any sort of band, anything, uh, no shirts, nothing like that. Couldn't grow my hair, couldn't do any of those things that I was able to do before. Uh, so I had to sneak it. So, and so what I did is I put headphones on at night and I kept everything hidden in my room. I had two records. I had, uh, 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 so I had three. I had Queen's Right, The Warning, I had Iron Maiden, Power Slave, and I had Ted Nugent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a Ted Nugent record, and I don't remember the name of it because it was on a blank tape, but it had um, Stranglehold and all that stuff on it. It was that record that I had. So, so just as an aside, my dad's best friend as a kid was <clears throat> Jeff Nugent. It was Ted Nugent's younger brother. Really? Yep. Man, what a <laughs> story that guy's got. <laughs> but he, man, he saved my life, and I was just listening, listening to that record and uh, every day and every night, twenty like almost 24-7, any chance I got to be alone with that record, I would listen to it. And, and so I started like picking out instruments and picking out, I could hear the bass, I could hear the kick drum only, the, the snare and the hi-hats and how they sort of wonder how they captured it and became interested in it. And, uh, music listening became, uh, I had basically acted out with it. Mm -hmm. I used it to escape and go to a, a whole different fantasy land that didn't exist. And I, but I only had three bands cause I wasn't really able to have rock radio in Mississippi. Yeah. I didn't have any, forget about MTV, Jack, you weren't watching MTV in my house. If we even had a TV, I would kiss your ass. You know what I mean? Like, so I had to get it from other places. So I missed a lot of music. Uh, I missed a lot of really good bands, but I also got really in tune with a lot of, not a lot, like five or six really good ones that I really love. Leonard Skinner, um, the Ted Nugent, um, a lot of country, some gospel, because you get exposed to gospel in Mississippi just by default, just by living there. Yep. Um, and Leonard Skinner, of course. And uh, I started kind of like, opening my leg, I opened up to other stuff and not just listen to one band because that's what I did for so long. And so now, man, um, I'm a huge uh, capture. I love the way music is captured. So if it's done right, all this pop stuff that people hate, and they really hate on these artists that, that, that sing and, and do all these big songs, they hate them because they didn't write them. Who cares? 
It's a form of art. Somebody, yeah, some person is in charge of that thing. That is some one person's art. I mean, I don't care if it's 50 people writing it. Somebody was like, today's the day we do this. Yeah, great point. Great yeah. point. And so they do that. And man, is that a beautiful thing? Yes, it's a beautiful thing. Do you hate Miley Cyrus? Maybe. But is that song at fault? No. You know what I mean? That's no. A beautiful and she man. can sing for sure. Ooh, she is oh, she's amazing. And you, you get like a, what's that, uh, this Doja Cat. There's all these like pop people that people just, if you mention them to my friends, they're like, what? And I'm like, all right, well, whatever. I'm going to be, I'm going to enjoy this. It's good stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I love it, man. And music has been that for me. And it always has been. And when I got to that treatment center the first time, they were like, well, you're a musician. Why don't you use music as an outlet? And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, why don't you write some songs about treatment? And I was like, no, I think I'm going to do it another way. I'm going to try not to use music here. I want to find other ways. Yeah, I want to, because I already knew I could do that. Yep. And I was like, has that really saved my, has that really saved me? No, here I am. Yeah. Nevertheless, here I am, melting down. It's great. Written, written all these other parts, you know, all these songs and other things I've done with Brad and other people. Did it cure anything? It did probably help probably save my life more than once, but like it was only a, it was only a piece of the puzzle, but it was not the, the, the main piece. There's other therapeutic things out there that work better. Okay. And, and things that I haven't done yet that I want to try. And, yeah. you know, do you do you use it at all as a like not a coping mechanism but as a you know as a therapy like do you pick up your guitar and just play to kind of unwind okay what I do is I'll listen to a song and I'll be like that's the one that's the song that I'm gonna that I'm gonna do next and it'll be someone else's song it'll be a guitar part or a bass part or a drum party but I got a set of drum, set of drums upstairs and I'll learn that song on that instrument that I decide that I'm gonna do it and that's how I'll do it it takes time and uh it's a uh, but it's a it's a thing where I can take my mind off of everything else just yes. for a moment. Yep, and I and I think that's a huge piece of it, right? Like I'm I'm a big proponent of learning, having some skill that you like to learn, whatever that may be, because it develops new neural pathways. Yep. It creates a sense of focus that you can't get with other things when you have to use your body in conjunction with something you're learning. You, you sort of can't think of something else, right? Like if you're trying to learn a song on a guitar or a piano or drums or whatever, it's really hard to think about anything else while you're doing that. Cause it's like, really? I got to think about this. And I, in that sense, I think it's a, a super powerful tool. It's like, it can be a distraction too, like, and just sort of distracting you from things. But I think it's a really healthy way to do that. Um, where, you know, um, let me, just a couple of a kind of music nerd questions. <laughs> <laughs> the songs that you like, you know, all these hit songs that you've written, do you, how does it work for you normally? Do you write the music first? Did you, you know, like here without you, like are these songs where you like wrote the lick and then Brad writes lyrics afterwards or how does that work for the most part? I think nine, nine out of 10 of our songs are written like that. Some of them he'll come with a, a music and melody idea. But what I found about Brad is his melody ideas when he's when he doesn't have a music like bed to like listen to, they're 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 really good, they're really good. But they, I I, I listen to like his melody ideas, and they're we have totally different ideas mm. when it's called like that, and we won't be able to sometimes put that together. But if if I lay a a, a music bed down, even if it's just really simple, and that's what I usually do, just keep it kind of linear, and let him change those. You know what I mean? Let yeah. him and his parts yeah. will be different. They'll be what I what I need to hear, so then I can just give him a flatbed, you know, three chords, and he'll be like, "Yeah, I like it, bam, off we go." Here with that, it was not like that. I did the, uh, that song was written as a musical piece. 
Mm. Why so busy? It's like, yeah. Nah, 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 nah. It's, yeah. I'm frustrated and busy and just how many strings can I hit? Yeah, that was the way that I could just kind of do it. I would put something like that down and then dumb it down, then bring it back, then bring mm. it back, slow it down, and then uh, it would become a piece like that. But that was written as a musical piece. The guitar sings the, you know, and, I, and that's what, but he heard it. He was like, oh, my God. And, and he wrote me the lyrics to hear without you. And uh, it wasn't an easy write. That song took um, took a while. And the bridge, the part that we didn't have, um, wasn't didn't exist. I, I was laying in bed one night and I was asleep. It was like three o'clock in the morning, and I kept a little uh, recorder. Learned <laughs> this that is a Brett. really common thing for musicians, isn't it, to do this kind of thing? Yeah. My wife was like not having any part of it. She's like, "That's not coming in the bedroom." I was like, "What?" She's like, "That recorder's not coming in the bedroom." She's like, "That guitar is not gonna, you know, it's not gonna be here." And I was like. I just need it for a couple of weeks is what I told her. I was like, yeah. I need it for a couple of weeks. I got a part that I'm trying to work out. And if it comes at three in the morning, I'm going to jump out of bed. I'm going to do it real quick. Yep. It came that night. I had a dream. And I woke up. And I was like, got it. Jumped up. <laughs> put it on the floor. Play it for Brad. We put the song together. Here yeah. without you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's that's and, awesome. There's a, there's a story about, I think it's Keith Richards when he wrote, uh, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, where it was like a thing like that, where either he woke up in the middle of the night or it was like right before he went to bed. And he had some old, this is, you know, in the sixties or whatever. And he had some old tape recorder thing and they hit that and he played the riff. And he said, it was like, here, the, he woke up the next morning, the riff was on there and there was like eight hours of snoring after it, where it was just like <laughs> That's funny, it was sleeping on the thing. So you know, there's a spot where you, where you, when you're waking up, then I know you're going to realize you're going to know this, but there's a spot where you wake up, where you, when you wake, when you're having that moment, only remember, you know, that you're dreaming it, but it's real. So try not to move your head when you wake up. Try to just open your eyes and not move. Huh. And then and then remember it awake the first time and then grab the tape recorder and go for it. And you'll get 99% of what you had oh, on the tape recorder. That's an interesting idea. I've never if tried that. Well, you should try. Uh, it works for me. If you don't, if you don't try it and you get up and you go, I'm gonna get coffee, I'll come back to this. It doesn't work, man. It's gone. Oh, well, I'm with you on that. I mean, I'm not the level musician you are, certainly, but I'm I am very lazy when it I should do the thing you're talking about because I know there's lots of like people do it with lyrics and they do it with poems and they do it right. It's like they got to keep that shit next to the bed because because yeah. I t the times where I think at least I've come up with something good, it's like I'm going to sleep and I'll think of it and I'm like and here's I've done this a bunch of times. I'm like I'll remember it in the morning. No, nope, uh -huh. nope, it's gone. Like it's nope. not there anymore. It's just, and it's gone. Like it's not coming back, whatever it was. It's not coming back. And when it does come back, it's not going to be the same. No, no. So it's uh, just not. Is there a, so on the, just last thing on kind of the music stuff, is it, is it, what's your favorite part of all of it? Is it touring? Is it writing songs? Is it recording? Is it just playing guitar by yourself? Like. I think guitar by myself was a big part of it because I've always been like a, like I said, I'm avoidant. So I like when people are around. Um, but I think the best, the best part of this whole life that I've, that I've led with the band and with the music and everything is just the, um, the gratification of knowing that no matter what, and, and, and this is the way I live my whole life. It's like, no matter what, that was a part of that. Yeah. And I don't have to brag about it. I never really do, um, monetarily. I survive and I do what everybody else does. I work hard. I get paid for it. That part is great. But the best part about it is like just when someone comes in and they're like, man, that's a really good song. And they don't like, they're not worshiping me or anything for what I did. They're not kissing my butt. They're just like, that's a good song. That's a yeah. good song. And I know what they're talking about. And Brad, 
he's good at this, man. And he did this the other day to me. He, he sent me a text with one of our playlists that he just goes in, up to Spotify or whatever uh, platform and he gets a three or down playlist and he, he reads the, the songs in order the way that they are. Mm-hmm. And he sends that to me and he's like, that's a set list, man. He's like, that's how we do this. Yeah. He's like, the people are telling us what they want to hear. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're all there and they're in the order that people. So that's a great tool. And uh, I was like, man, that's a good thing. So I did that. Yeah. Hey, the other thing I wanted to say was, you know, you, you were, obviously I try to speak to veterans that are struggling out there w- with whatever. I just think it's important. Like what I'm, what I'm trying to do is, is provide a kind of vulnerable voice to the veteran struggle and not put words in anybody else's mouth. But, and you're a veteran as well. And, mm-hmm. and you guys, I guess I just wanted to say like, you're a, a band that has really appealed to military members and have, you've been very supportive of the military and, and veterans. And so, look, I appreciate that. You know, I don't know if there's anything you want to say a, about that, but I mean, I, I really I would, appreciate, you know, your, I would like to say what you guys specific- do there. Two veterans uh, that that one hour of therapy a week is not enough for what you have to deal with. It just isn't, man. Yeah, there has to be some sort of like there has to be something else that you're doing, and it could be, um, yes, codependent anonymous like Coda those those kind of meetings because codependence is something that comes out of the stuff that we go through, and uh, codependent anonymous is a good place to do that. Um, a therapist, yeah. I would have a couple. I would yeah. Do- I, well, to me, it's, I mean, the message that I try to espouse is you got to learn from all these things, right? Yes. So it's like, if you go to a therapist, that's great. Like, and I've gone to therapy and, and, I, and it can be absolutely beneficial, but you got to learn what the therapist is trying to get you to learn and then that's take it on board yourself, right? Like, so you, 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 it's taking ownership and responsibility for these things so that you can put into practice whatever you need to put into practice, Right. Yes. If you're constantly going and looking for other people to fix you, you're never going to get fixed, in my opinion. Right? Nope. You're not. And they say that you're never alone, but when you're in the black dot, who else is in there with you? You're not actually alone. You're just in the black dot by yourself. But with a therapist, like you said, when you understand what they're trying to tell you to do and the tricks and the techniques to help you with that, that's what's important. And that's what doesn't come by sitting there talking about it. Yeah. You have yep. to have someone go, hey, man. This is why those books that we're talking about, the body keeps the score. Yep. You know, breath. Those are books. Read those books. Man. Absolutely. Read as many as you can, all of yep. them. And be proactive and own it. Feel it. You got to feel the heel. Yeah, I love it. Love it. <laughs> feel the heel. Anything else you want to go over, man? Like any anything that we didn't cover? I mean, that was super in depth. Uh, I can't think of anything, but I, I would just like to say, like, uh, don't be afraid to surrender to the fact that you're hurting and, and, and go somewhere where there are people that care that can help you and show you how to deal with it. Don't try to do that by yourself. Don't try to do that one hour a week with driving over to the business plaza and sitting down with social therapists. Try to go find a place. If it's that bad, go find a place that can help you because they are out there. There's not many of them, but they are out there. And uh, if there's a book, like I said, the trauma heart by Judy crane, read that book. She yeah, I got to check thing. that out. Yeah. It's good, man. Um, it's the treatment center in California. Florida. It used to be called the Refuge, I think, or she started, which is also in Florida. And they started this kind of program with this experiential therapy that really, it's got everything. It's got talk therapy in it. You get your hour a week with the therapist like you get, but you also paint and you play music and there's horses and they take you on field trips. And it's like you meet a lot of people and you spend all of your time with these people. 
I don't think I, I don't know where I'd be right now, man. Because I was about to blow my, I was about to uh, do do some things I probably shouldn't. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I've never had that thought before in my world, in my in my day, and then all of a sudden one day, one morning, getting up and having that moment, I just couldn't stop, and I was like, oh shit, oh yeah. that seems like a great idea. And once that happens, yep. You know, yep. that's a that's a big step in mental health. When you when you do that, it doesn't you don't you don't just stop doing that. It becomes a wheel. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, and that's that to me again is why you gotta you have to know ahead of time the tools that to deal with that, right? Yeah. At that point, if you don't have those tools, that's where it becomes dangerous, right? That's and that's that this rocks. is the reality of things. It's like we just we can't always be there for other people. People mm-hmm. are by themselves at points right and if and if if that those thoughts start coming into their minds at a point where there's nobody else around the only person that can save them them is them right yeah. they're the only person and that be, that means they have to have done work prior work training to know to be like okay this is just a thought yeah. right this is not a fact or anything like that like it's just a piece of it's a stream of information and i don't have to pay attention to it right and and like and you know and there's a whole bunch of other kind of like ways to approach it but um well hey dude like again i think that just i really appreciate how open and vulnerable and willing to kind of share that with everybody you you are it's it's really admirable really admirable and i think it's immensely helpful and i think a lot of people will get a lot out of it so i really appreciate it i hope so man i appreciate you and and like you started it <laughs> you went online and started doing it and i was like man that's perfect like that's awesome i'm really i'm really glad you did that man thank you you helped me as, as much as anyone out there just by doing what you do and being who you are man well i'm really i'm very fortunate that i met you that day and uh that uh uh was it chachi from uh, yeah. Poppy? Yeah. he, he turned me on to you and gave me your number and i talked to you that day and you're at uh at kill cliff and i was yeah. like who am I talking to a real person? This is great. And you've been friends ever since, man. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were good times, man. Like the, all the stuff we did back there. So look, I, I look forward to seeing you this summer um, and, and introducing you to my kids too, which will be great. Yeah. And, uh, and it'll be awesome. So yeah, right. we'll see you soon, brother. Sounds good, buddy. All right. Love you, bro. Love too, man. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to the Rare Sense Podcast. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe on any of the major streaming platforms and leave a five-star review if you love it. Also, if you're interested in monthly articles, weekly mind training, and monthly book recommendations, please subscribe to the RareSense Substack at rarsense.substack.com. It's currently free. You can also connect with me on all major social media platforms at This Chris Irwin, and that includes a YouTube channel, which has video versions of the podcast episodes, as well as video versions of various mind training exercises. You can also check out additional content at the RareSense website, rarsense.com. There you'll find a 20-day challenge gear that you can purchase and a contact form if you'd like to connect with me and potentially have me speak to your organization about mind fitness. Thanks again for listening. 